you know, what does it mean to have food systems that are reliant on our local environments, um, where we are uh, responsible for the things that exist around us instead of calling lawn doctor or whoever to come cut our grass and fertilize and who cares what runs off and all of these types of things. Uh, there's some agency in that in that decision where we actually understand the the complexity of these things that have been really turned into transactional relationships of, well, if I pay $50 a month, my grass is green and I don't have to worry about it. Uh, it's a much more complicated conversation than that. <laughs> oh, shit. oh crap! What was this about? Um, how do we start these things? I don't know. Did you see? Did you see the news that the guy who made the Starties got picked up by Games Workshop? I did see that. Yeah. That good way to start it. Yeah. yeah so yeah. okay. We talked about that a little while, like very early episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked a bit about these. What's his, his name? Is like si- I'm probably gonna mispronounce it, but it's like Sima Peterson, Sima Peterson, no Sima Peterson, I have no idea. something Peterson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do you feel about that? So it's a curious one, isn't it? Like I obviously when anybody ever takes their independent projects and sort of like lets it get absorbed into yeah. a big machine, you Especially automatically Yeah, particularly Games Workshop, you yeah. automatically think, Oh god, what strings are gonna be attached <laughs> yeah. for? Um and you have to I suppose to some extent for some reason I have this sense that this person who I have no idea who they are, I don't even know their name. Yeah, this parasocial (laughs) relationship I have with this person who's made this incredible piece of sort of like Uh, Warhammer forty thousand themed uh, fan art, which actually uh, happens to be the best the best sort of like um animated or the the best depiction the best depiction of the Warhammer forty thousand universe in basically any any um moving medium any medium at all <laughs> any yeah, medium at insane. all um and it was a sort of single-handed any yeah like a one-man job kind yeah. of thing. um or a very a very small team effort well they could say very small man small, so one, maybe one very small man <laughs> <laughs> my parasocial relationship <laughs> with my temple is convinced <laughs> me that this person is in fact quite short um but i'm sure a king a king uh, oh, a king nonetheless <laughs> um and so, yeah, so what I was going to say was I sort of imagine, I read, I, I imagine this person as having great integrity. Sure. Me too. But, but um, I also would not fault them for taking a big check. Yeah. But that's <laughs> the thing. So that's what's got me wondering. I don't know if his Patreon is still going. I should have checked, but it's like his Patreon was insane the amount okay, of money he was yeah, making. Yeah, so it wasn't any need to. And so maybe it's just that it was, he just always wanted to work with Games Workshop because they are doing something new, right? Where they're bringing on a bunch of other animators as yeah, well. Yeah. I mean, that, I think they've developed, yeah, they, they've brought on lots of people from different projects, I think. And yeah. I think they intend to, they're going to host lots of videos on, I think they're moving all the Astartes stuff onto a specific website that's yeah. part of like Games Workshop's website. Yeah. And then, um, I think they probably hope to develop quite a lot of animated content. Did you see the but trailer? Like, but like, I, I, I don't know anything about this really, but I suppose <laughs> even if you have a really massive, a lot of money, yeah, there's a certain amount of just like setting up sure. 
using that money to if supposing you were going to like set up your own studio yeah maybe they like, offered him like so resources. much work yeah. yeah i mean like so much like knowledge and time and resources that could just yeah like may, maybe what's happening is just handed the games up the job of making <laughs> yes yeah exactly AMA, yeah. did you see the trailer for the tau one there's one where it's like a tau. yeah yeah it was like, like a, a crisis suit kind of thing there yeah, was very like little a, content in that video it was just like a scared looking yeah. tau like yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was about it i don't think he looked very much like what i think tau looked like i don't know what i think tau looked like because yeah. every time i see a depiction of them i'm like eh, maybe they're always different it's kind of weird i'm i'm coming around though i'm coming around to think they're cool because like okay. i used to just kind of be like ah. yeah but yeah, now i'm going yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. I don't know. I guess, yeah, I guess some people feel the, the sort of the oddballs of the Warhammer 40,000 universe. Do they sort yeah. of fit somehow? But I think there's a point to that, to them being the oddballs. Mm. I don't know. Maybe mm. there isn't, but it's like, it's cool seeing that like difference because you do kind of at first glance, go, oh, they're kind of like the closest thing you have to a good guys. And then you're like, are they? And then the fact that they're so different is cool. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, they are the relief into which, yeah. the relief to which the rest of the Warhammer 40,000 universe is. Yeah. Sort of like compared kind of thing. Mm. Um, mm. And looking into that, well, my understanding of their backstory from what I learned, I guess like nearly two decades ago now <laughs> when they came out, when they actually were, when they were released. Last year. The first time. <laughs> um, or was it last year? Okay. <laughs> well, I'm um, stoked. Yeah. From what I know of their story, like the story is designed to be like yeah. this new race that suddenly appeared. And uh, yeah. I don't know. Dude, I just want to see, I want to see the Astartes guy, um, I want to see the orcs. I just want to see yeah. the orcs. That depiction of the orcs, the like two seconds that we got was so cool. Uh -huh. Oh my God. Uh -huh. They're just going uh -huh. nuts on some space Marine. Good stuff. Mm -hmm. Love it. Mm -hmm. Our friends. Mm -hmm. um, should I have some farming? Yeah. <laughs> what else? I don't know. Yeah. I got anything yeah. else. We're going to the aggro world. We're going into the aggro world. <laughs> uh, Royal listener, do we have a treat? For you this week one hell of a show we have one hell of a show it's pretty <laughs> wild it's pretty awesome talk about all sorts of good stuff we have an interview with um andy and elliot from the poor proles almanac podcast mm -hmm. which dan introduced me to a little while ago now and it's been one of my favorites ever since yeah yeah yeah, yeah. a legit favorite of both mm. of us <laughs> a podcast favorite oh, well a, in more ways than one i guess yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a podcast favorite podcast yeah <laughs> The podcast is podcast. The po <laughs> it's a podcast for podcasters. <laughs> no, it's definitely not. <laughs> what an obnoxious podcast that would be. Yeah, that would be uh, horrible. It, it definitely exists. It definitely the exists. podcast about making a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's great. Poor Pearl's Almanac, for those of you who might not be listening to it, is a show about, I suppose, half prepping for capitalist collapse, um, what that would look like, but also just like, self-organization self-determinist it self i don't know it's just like self what's the word like self uh uh there is a word for it and i'm blanking on it self empowerment i suppose yes. is a good yeah, way yeah, of putting yeah, it yeah, yeah, about yeah. how to grow your own food how to have a farm how to protect yourself how to organize and protect your community it's praxis folks <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i didn't mention this in the interview but like one of its standout qualities for me is that it's Around, based around building mm. people's capacities yeah yeah um to look after themselves and yeah. the people around them um it's a weird one because like i mean it's a podcast that differs from ours in so many ways like sure. ours is incredibly <laughs> ad hoc fly by the seat of your pants very low preparedness <laughs> very much so um 
and theirs is in, sort of incredibly well prepared and yeah. produced and incredibly researched dense, and... incredibly well researched yeah. dense with information yeah um incredibly practical whereas mm. ours is <laughs> um, <laughs> relatively theoretical sure yeah um and also coming from a different part of the old left mm. spectrum in mm. terms of sort of uh, mm. political differences sure. Sure, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. more um, anarchistic in its sort of yeah. theme and um, theoretical basis mm. um, but I do think although although there's a certain amount of coming up questions from different directions like mm. we're all but in a broad sense like there is um, people from across the kind of like spectrum of left ideologies for mm. of a bit of a phrase are all like striving <laughs> after answers to some of the same questions sure um whether it's how to do organizing how to build up people's capacities um how, how to replace the state mm. and it's sort of like mm. uh, repressive apparatuses and yeah. with what what yeah. what uh tools and um structures and organizations mm. would we do that with kind of thing yeah um so there's different positions and there's different um uh areas of focus for sure mm. but um mm. but a great deal of overlap i think as well and oh absolutely My, mainly overlap uh, yes i would yeah, say quite. if you if you're if you're uh uh kind of like a you know very um dogmatic marxist perhaps or a dogmatic communist or i don't know whatever you're very stuck in your ways uh, go give their show a listen because it is my favorite show right now. It's so good. And I mentioned this, I think, in the episode. I kind of forget because I haven't edited it yet. So maybe maybe I don't say this. But it is really good for dealing with your anxieties about capitalism. Because <laughs> as, I, I think, as, I, as I say, um, recently I had a bit of a uh, apocalyptic, um, is the world about to end moment, Dana, to talk me down a little bit. And um, this show is really good to help you develop the qualities that you need to kind of get past that anxiety and to prepare for whatever could come, but also just like take a deep breath, step back and just help your community and help yourself. Mm -hmm. That's really what it's all about, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would highly recommend. I mean, their pitch is that you go and listen to the first episode because yeah. their content is very additive mm -hmm. and it builds upon... Um, builds upon the content that's come in previous episodes first episode's but a little I scary recommend going to watch the first listen to the first episode even if that's only as far as you go in that mm. um it is as you say quite a scary and quite <laughs> a sobering um account of the oh. ecological crisis in which we find ourselves but it's yeah. one that's presented in a way that you don't often come across mm. um covers really quite the long array of sort of like mm. um what we're up against, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah, quite, yeah, yeah. And puts it in, puts it in, well, I mean, the long durée of history, I suppose. Oh, sure. Um, and p puts the history of Earth's climate in specific context mm. um, and uses a conceptual framework that you might not have come across before to um, explain quite the degree of crisis. Yeah. And um, if you want some help, I'm sure you're going to need some help. Yes. You want some help in, in, in <laughs> um, interpreting some of the things that we've been striving after in our last couple of episodes mm. Mm. on ecology. Um, much greater clarity is going to come from listening to yes. that first episode of the Paul Pearls Almanac podcast than um, Absolutely. our meager efforts. 
Absolutely. Yeah, and know. ecology is something we should all be thinking about. And um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we, what do we talk about? We, so we talk about soil health. We talk about gardening, farming, chickens. We talk about compost. We talk about chicken guns, tractors. chicken tractors. A lot about chicken tractors. And yeah, the conversation about guns is really good. So stick around for that. That's at the end about kind of like where should we be falling as like workers on like the, you know, I don't know, spectrum of like gun rights versus like no guns, which is really, really interesting. Yeah, that's a conversation that I think we'd like to develop over some episodes. Absolutely, yeah. Um, mm. Both sort of like the the practical implications of gun ownership. Obviously, mm. in this country, mm. no we guns. don't have that right. No <laughs> um, and also, like, it's a different political context. Sure. Although I think there's probably some overlap between people's intuitions in this country and the intuitions of... Um, sort of the liberal left in America, which mm. sort of for obvious reason to some, mm. I, I would say for obvious reason has sort of like developed this sort of like gun skeptic or anti-gun mm. um, Absolutely. position. Mm. But yeah, so there's this sort of like, there's that sense of like um, the immediate consequences of gun ownership. Mm. And then also broader questions of like, um, what you would do to replace some of those, yeah. some of the sort of like enforcement apparatuses of the present state yeah. in a new state. Yeah. Um, and they're sort of like deep, important questions that yeah. we should be moving to sort of think about. Absolutely. Yeah. How you can protect your community and like, even, even just like the practical of like, okay, you bought a gun now, what? Because it, like they'll, you'll hear them talk about it here in just a moment, but they basically just make the point. It's like, that should be the last thing that you ever <laughs> like think of using in any situation. Mm -hmm. um, so it isn't just a like, everybody go buy guns. It's not really going to solve too much, but anyway, we'll get to that. We'll get to all of that. Um, thank you so much to Andy and Elliot for coming on the show. Re I had an yeah, awesome like, time. Yes. Such, um, just two great open guys. Yeah. Like so willing to talk about the stuff. Yeah. Um, Very knowledgeable as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and yes, uh, go grow some stuff, everybody. And enjoy this episode. We were just kind of thinking like a good place to start it off is uh, Dan and I have an allotment over here. And we were over there today working on some compost, working on some no dig beds. And we were kind of wondering like seasonally, like where are you guys at? Like what are you... What are you working on on your farms and your gardens? What do you got going on uh, right now? Yeah, so I just got a, a shipment of 50 raspberries that are flat, uh, leafing out already. And Ooh. the ground is hard as a rock. So I have no place to put any of these 50 uh, raspberries. So I'm trying to figure out. And they all have some roots. So I can't just stick them in like, um, you know, a little cup or something like that. Um, so I'm just kind of trying to figure that out right now and i've got turkey eggs going right now in the incubator um Beautiful. baby chicks yeah so it's it's a little bit it's almost that chaotic time my sheep are miserable because i need to shave them because it gets hot during the day but it's still freezing at night it's just you know good time all around yeah and me personally right um i don't have anything going on right now because uh, my wife and i were trying to decide if we were actually going to stay in the house that we have currently or if we were going to try to move, but the house inventory is kind of dictated that we stay. And um, we kind of decided a bit too late in the season for me to get anything started, but I am going to build um, some hoop houses and stuff, hopefully um, this summer and into the fall and get ready for next spring and see what I can do. And we're going to do some right chicken on. tractors here. Hopefully going to try a chicken tractor. Chicken tractor? It's a chicken yeah. tractor. So it's Sounds like, a, <laughs> yeah, so you can get them different sizes, but the one I, I make 
for myself and I'll make for him or we'll work together on is uh, about four by eight and you can set it up. So it has about four laying chicks in it and uh, you just move it every day and throw in a little bit of feed depending on the, the chicken type that you have. Um, so like uh, if you use some meat chickens, you can do like uh, 10, 12, 15 weeks uh, depending on what you go with. If you go with an heirloom, it takes longer, like 18 weeks. And ideally you can move it around the yard. And um, they will fertilize and take care of all the bugs and ticks and stuff like that. That would most likely get into your garden and, um, you know, do a little bit of damage. They'll take care of that. You just have to uh, move it. What do you move it? Once every couple of days or once a day? Yeah, I usually do every day. Yeah. So that's it. I was going to ask you guys, like, I, I heard on one of your episodes that you, like, been raising your chickens with like little to no feed how do you guys do that is it just through them like just eating so, bugs or whatever yeah so like i free range my birds um so they i do some chicken tractors usually with chicken tractors you can't do it without feed um but during the summer i don't feed them at all um usually when winter comes around i do supplement a bit um i'll, I'll grow sunflowers and then ferment some sunflower seeds and things like that Oh, cool. um, I'll use some regular feed. I've been, my wife thinks I'm insane, but I'm very interested in buying a pelletizer so you can make your own pellets, um, which she's awesome. like, you're absolutely fucking nuts. And, um, <laughs> but, but I want to do a lot more like, um, I have mulberry trees in my yard and, um, they, the, the leaves are about 20% protein. Uh, so they're oh, like cool. the perfect food, but it's not something they're going to go out and eat. So I'm curious if I pelletized it, um, Instead of just giving it to my sheep, I could also give it to my chickens because their feed is usually between 16 and 21% protein, depending on what you're uh, trying to do with them. So I'm curious if that would actually work. I could not find anyone that's ever done that. So I might buy a $1,000 machine and break it the first time I use it. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> I mean, I've never had a chicken. Good if it works. Yeah. yeah, I've never had a chicken before, so he keeps trying to talk me into getting a chicken tractor, and he'll probably try to talk me into getting a goat. I 100 will not talk you into a goat. Okay, I'll talk you into a sheep. A sheep? Yes, Icelandic sheep. I am a big fan of Icelandics. That's because the region we live in. Yeah, I guess cool. he's been trying to talk me into all sorts of animals and stuff. I'm new to all of this, so it's stuff that we've talked about before and had conversations and i think that's sort of how we started in the podcast um yeah, was, we kind of have different backgrounds and together we make one cohesive conversation right we're weirdly interested in sort of the same things um he's doing it from a standpoint where he wants to try all of it and i'm just sort of curious as to um i, I love cooking and it started with understanding where my ingredients and food came from and it got into the science behind growing food and all of this. And it opened up a whole new, you know, um, uh, concept for me to just kind of dive into. So I'm just bored, I That's guess. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, enjoyed the club. Would you guys, would you guys just tell us right? Like real quick, just like kind of the conceit behind the show and like sure, so. what you guys are going for. You kind of started it there, but yeah. So, uh, the poor pearls almanac was, uh, a conversation we had, um, we were on a road trip for uh, an unfortunate event. A friend of ours had passed away and uh, we were just kind of like chit chatting. And uh, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the podcast. It could happen here. Um, Robert Evans. Mm -hmm. It's a highly, highly recommend if there's one podcast you ever listened to in your life, that is it. Um, but we were kind of talking about like how everything just seems awful in the world. And um, 
I was like, oh, you got to listen to this podcast. And it's essentially about um, how collapse could happen here in the United States and what that would look like from somebody that had spent time in as a journalist in the Middle East. And, um, you know, after that, we were just kind of like talking and, you know, I was already farming and, you know, we were just kind of like chit chatting. And I, I had some exposure to guns, um, but I didn't have a ton. And he has an extensive background in weapons and we're both um, like, I guess, acutely aware of the conditions right now in the in our country as well as across the globe. Well, basically, I frame the question of, you know, it's kind of a shit show right now. And where do we get started on not relying on somebody else coming to give us answers or save us, but where do we start ourselves and how do we, you know, find that self-determination? We use that phrase a lot. And um, how do we use our abilities and our knowledge to improve, you know, our livelihood and our community um, without, you know, waiting for permission or waiting for somebody to say that it's okay to improve your surroundings. I feel like a lot of people are kind of um, not stuck, but just sort of paralyzed by the feeling that, Oh, I could change, you know, my whole way of life and it's not going to change the world. Um, But that's not really our approach. And I was just sort of under the impression, maybe I was audacious in thinking that the conversations that we were having on how to get started might be other conversations that people would be interested in having. And so, and I said, no way, no one wants to listen to us talk. Right. I didn't, I didn't want to get a microphone just so I could hear myself like speak. Like I, I hate the way my voice sounds on recording, but I felt that the conversations we were having are a good starting point or at least um, a good starting point for people to hear. And maybe it will spark their curiosity in either learning more information or just being interested in, you know, what can I do or what ideas can I get that will make me feel better about what I'm doing with my life rather than what I was doing, which is just getting up and going to work and trying to make it and scratch by and, you know, the rat race, I was trying to figure out the things that I can do to, you know, improve my situation without um, being overburdened. But instead I started a podcast and Andy started giving me homework and now I have two jobs and I only get paid for one. Yeah. Sorry. So So, here we are. Yeah. Yeah, let me ask you some about that. When I first started listening to your show, like the main thing that I was hit with was like kind of like this reason that you guys are doing all this like prepping stuff and like, you know, like mutual aid and all this kind of stuff. Like there are like a million beneficial reasons, right? But the one that really stuck out to me was like, man, it puts you in such a better mindset for like knowing not only like what could happen, but just like all this anxiety that we all constantly carry around with us, whether it's for like work insecurity or like how much you hate your job or like, you know, something not related to work or just like a million things related to work. Like it really kind of seems like it puts you in a better mindset. Right. And I had the conversation with my wife earlier today about um, uh, taking, you know, your energy and all that pent up aggression and pent up energy. If you don't have a hobby, hobby on an outlet or anything to channel your energy towards, um, if you can't do anything, just find something constructive to do because in the long run, that's always going to be, um, it's always going to have a positive outcome, uh, rather than being destructive or anything like that. And that's a very, you know, broad statement. But what I mean by that is if you feel like you're trapped or can't do anything, your best bet is to start simple, start small and be constructive and build your way up because that's the only way you get out of that. There's nothing I can do mindset. You um, just have to start at the basics, baby steps, um, 
you know, educate and then go for it. So that's pretty much what we did with the podcast. Um, I listened to a couple of podcasts here and there for the past couple of years, never in the, never in my life did I think I would have one, but, um, I sort of spitballed the idea. Andy came back to me uh, a couple of months later and was like, um, you know, we just buried a good friend. So why would we wait with an idea like this? Why don't we do it? And like I said, I've been reading <laughs> since um, trying to figure out what the hell I'm talking about when there's a microphone in my face. Right on that's sick. Uh, I got a million questions, but Dan, I'm going to pass it over to you. And we got some stuff. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to say like, one of the things that's most inspiring about your guys podcast is quite how um it's designed to build people's capacities kind of thing um and to sort of start with that what can i do what knowledge do i need to begin to develop because i think you're really right Elliot. like it's very easy to get overwhelmed and how do i position myself particularly from kind of the the place where our podcast is coming from and particularly where my part my sort of thinking is coming from is much more mm -hmm. like um maybe like a Marxist socialist kind of background of like, how do we rebuild a workers movement kind of thing? And um, right. it yeah, feels right. like it demands quite a lot of you to like go into your workplaces necessarily, or go to people that you don't necessarily have like perhaps like organic connections with and uh, make that case. Whereas like, it feels like the, the, the space you're coming from is much more um, around involved around like the community that you're around and like, uh, yeah. Right. People's, like, and I commitment think... to that kind of thing. Right. And your approach brings a level, another level of complexity and organization involved in um, this movement. And it's an, it's another step to it for sure. But I think in the situation that we're in over here, um, I think it's, it's very, it's much smaller baby steps that we have to get started on um, because sure. the proof has to be in the pudding. And I feel like we have to do it and make it work and say, see, there's another way to live rather than, preach there's another way to live we can do it like just come with me sort of mentality like i feel like there's a lot of that and i, I think that's why our um episodes have sort of been a bit more academic or sort of luxury rather than conversations but only because we're trying to frame the information so that we can apply it to what's happening today rather than just preaching on a soapbox saying this is what you have to do like trust us like we're the only ones that are right our opinion is this this and that like we're we're trying to frame the conversation and um and make it so that it's easily digestible so that people can you know find a place to start yeah, yeah. that's something that i've noticed like particularly around the episodes around like ecology and agriculture and that kind of thing like you suddenly like i don't have to absorb all this information now but it's so listenable that i kind of know it's a starting point it's i know where to go to if i want to try yeah. and find something or like i haven't something jumps into my head oh i've heard andy mentioned right. this these yeah. right. of this sort of like i've got this tree yeah. and like what what am i going to do i'm going to try and plant it how am i going to like there's yeah, a spark of an idea and you have somewhere to go some direction kind of thing yeah and the goal has been so kind of around that idea of um I, we don't expect anyone to know it all uh but if you have kind of a baseline knowledge uh, it can frame up so many of those conversations. And uh, there's, you know, one of the challenges I've, part of why I wanted to do this uh, perspective on um, like whatever you want to call it, prepping, collapse, you know, anarchy, whatever, has been really around this idea that um, there's so much content out there, on, especially on YouTube, that it's just like, if you don't know what you're looking for, it's very easy to get sucked into a lot of these um, pseudoscience areas. Um, there's, and I, I don't know much about over there, but at least over here, 
um, permaculture and regenerative agriculture is really fraught with like white supremacy and um, like the cottage core movement and things like that. Um, and it's only been in the last couple of years that uh, there's been like a, a, a galvanized voice against that. And um, it, it's very much been a part of that, like hyper individualist prepper, like what you think of as prepper uh, culture. And I don't really want to gloss over it. When he says white supremacy, he doesn't mean like, you know, Ku Klux Klan, like racist or anything like that. He's talking about like, uh, uh, there is some of that. There is underneath, but not, it's not so overt. But from the most part, it's like the class status of buying this information um, and basically doing it as a hobby rather than, you know, treating it like a way of life, which is what it was for indigenous peoples. And I think that's the kind of white supremacy you mean so much i think that's the part that's missed or sort of uh, glossed over i mean that is definitely uh, a large component of it uh but there's still like very much that um like the you know there's that show what the hell is it called prepper uh little house on the prairie no the prepper <laughs> that's on, it was on like discover or something like that and then i think it's on netflix now and it's like awful uh but oh. it's like the stereotypical like prepper who's like preparing for an emp and they've got like a bug out house and like they they run drills with their five-year-old kids carrying like ars and shit like that that sounds traumatic that yeah. sounds really cool and, like <laughs> really good tv yeah i love it and, uh, but like that podcasts are so much better yeah that, that uh, <laughs> mentality though of like the government's coming for me and i need to protect my family by buying five thousand pounds of beans and you know having chickens and they have this very topical understanding of oh i've got chickens but I've never really thought about what is what do I have to do to breed them? What's sustainable? How am I going to feed them when that 5,000 pounds of like cornmeal that I've got packed away someplace like is gone? Um, it's this very like I'm going to buy my way to outliving everyone else. Right. And I also think it uh, there's an implication there that's unspoken, but basically they're waiting for somebody to show up and, you know, save them. Like, yeah. I'll just wait it out. I'll wait the bad times out and then somebody's going to show up and like. Help they'll, me they'll out. be a purge or right. whatever. Right. Well, whatever. They're, yeah. they're just going to ride out the bad times. They're not planning on being part up. of building the new society. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or and, or and, building and a society that moves back toward. Yeah. Right. And, and that, that's the second step that sort of got me thinking like, well, you know, after, you know, shit hits the fan, which is a saying that gets thrown around all the time. Mm -hmm. After that happens, like, how do we take those next steps into rebuilding and like, how do we? Um, basically, you know, get people to buy in because you can't do it all by yourself. People are going to have to buy into these ideals in order to help you build a community and help you build, you know, civilization again, so to speak. I mean, it's not, hopefully it's not as epic as that. Hopefully, you know, yeah. it happens, you know, quickly. Like we, we've been talking about, Um, I've been reading a book about Tom Wessels. We're going to do an interview with him um, in a couple of weeks. And he talks about um, complex systems, which was our first episode. And that's such a broad, crazy topic to like cover. And I was like, dude, this is our first episode on a of a podcast. And we're going to try to break this down into bite-sized, digestible pieces that people are going to want to talk about. And I, all, I had a dream where basically it was just me talking to a wall. And that was me doing the podcast. And like... It was no, nobody was listening. I was just. I haven't mute. given you any it, PTSD. It was, no, you totally have. Like <laughs> I was super. I was super nervous about babbling on and on and on. And then I listened to it, and it wasn't great. But I feel like we sort of got across the idea of what we were trying to do, and 
that conversation sort of builds on each episode after that, because that's the only way um, you can fix things is by starting with the basis and then building on it. And I keep coming back to it, but I'm real, I'm really a simple guy and I like to keep things as simple as possible. And just having that approach to most things um, has sort of helped me learn a lot and taught me a lot, but it's also been like a safe way to go about learning things that I have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah, that first episode of yours is excellent, and I highly recommend anybody go and watch it. And it definitely like reframed, listen rather, and it sort of reframed my thinking about um, the environmental crisis that we're in. And it's definitely influenced a few of the episodes we've done recently in terms of like system theories or like um, it's just yeah, yeah. I think like a lot of people, uh, especially on the left, we all agree like what we're in isn't sustainable. Like eventually, this capitalism is gonna do what it's going to do. But we don't spend a lot of time talking about, okay, then what? Like we we always say like, oh, we need to change things, you know, whatever. But but then what? And uh, that's kind of been our focus is like we can't just democratize companies and then keep doing the same things. Uh, that That's not going to work. Right. There should be a second part to the, of, of the saying where when the shit hits the fan, then what? Oh, who's, who's going to clean it up? <laughs> yeah. Who's going to clean this shit up? Like somebody's got to do it. You know what I mean? And like if if we are going to be the ones that have to do it, then I want to go into it, like sort of knowing what the hell I'm doing rather than just kind of smearing it around. You know what I mean? Like I want to, I want to fix, I want to fix things. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to often the rug. Like, what do you do? I don't know. (laughs) Um, Can I, can I just go back real quick and just ask like, just for like a basic, like, I feel like when so many people hear about like prepping or they just hear the word prepping, right. It is kind of like exactly what you're describing. Like, some dude in like Idaho who like, you know, has buried a storage container or something and has a bunch of beans. Yeah. Yeah. And like had some like questionable, like fundamentalist views perhaps. And then like, but like, obviously like what you guys are doing is a lot more practical and it's a lot more like community based. Like it isn't just like isolate yourself, protect everybody, stockpile weapons and don't let anybody set foot on your like landmine perimeter. Can you just talk about like how community comes into that a bit? Sure. So I I don't think, I don't think anybody that's ten, spent more than like five minutes thinking about like prepping, like, okay, I need to get food and then I need to get this. And then you start thinking about all the things and, and you're like, okay, well, when I run out of this, I'm going to grow this and then I have to do this. And you, you start to realize pretty quickly that there's no way to do it alone. Um, and there's a reason for that. Like we aren't, we're, we're not a species that's supposed to be solitary. We've lived in communities our entire existence. Um, so this idea of, um, trying to build those communities by having the resources available and to um, have a basic understanding of like how we can re- replenish those resources um, ecologically uh, while being ecologically minded, I think is really important. And part of really building those communities is acknowledging that not everyone in our community is going to have the same political views as us. Um, I think especially because of the internet, we get really caught up in these like very esoteric conversations about like nuance and like oh you're a marxist and i'm an anarchist like you you're pretty much a nazi or you know whatever like that that comes up so much on the internet and it's like okay well if you feel that way then how are you going to build resilient like how are you going to build a working class solidarity if you can't even like agree with somebody who's like 90 percent of the way where you are um so like one of the things i'm doing uh, I live in this like rural suburbs. It's a right to farm community, which just means you can farm there without like permits and stuff like that. Um, but it's primarily like 
upper middle class white people that want a good school district and they just it's don't a, want to be around it's a other people. it's a privilege that they yeah. dole out to the towns that have property tax that's enough yeah, that to, price out to middle justify class, it basically lower middle class people. You, you you can't uh in this state you can't like just buy a house and start farming like your own food on it um like the town has to say it's okay yeah. basically which is you know that's a different argument entirely yeah and, and like so one of the things that i'm doing is um like I, I rotational graze my sheep and things like that. And I run them through my front yard. I do the same thing with my chickens, mm. uh, integrating chicken tractors into my front yard. So people have to see it uh, with the idea of uh, normalizing where our food comes from. And also um, in the next, I, I probably won't be there until another year or two. I'm hoping to start working with my neighbors to use uh, their lands and try to normalize and build those uh, connections within the community about what it looks like to create your own food into uh, relocalize your food within your community and, and just kind of get the ball rolling on those types of conversations. Because again, there, none of my neighbors are going to be leftist. I, at, at best, they'll be liberals. Um, and that's, that, that's just the world we live in. And if you, you can't find those commonalities through showing these resilient models of uh, primarily food systems, um, that to me, that's the way you connect with people. We, you know, when we think about things like culture and community, uh, it always usually comes down to food and food comes down to your environment. Uh, you eat the things that are available to you in your environment. And that's where our cultures come from. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're in this weird no man's land where food is uh, available. You know, you can get strawberries 52 weeks out of the year and whatever. Uh, and our food doesn't come from any place local. And uh, in order to build those communities, we need to start thinking about how do we redo that? How do we kind of go back to how things used to be in terms of um, knowing our local, our neighbors, because they're involved in the things that we're involved with, whether it's food, um, community outreach, mutual aid, all these different things. Um, that That's where you're really preparing for when those big supply chains collapse, which, you know, you can look at anything, you know, uh, water, fertilizers, oil. I mean, you name it, like none of this stuff lasts forever. And at some point we have to reckon with what's left. Right. And my approach is sort of similar to all of that, but slightly different. Um, I've never really been like a one man army or anything like that, but I have always tried my hardest to be uh, self-sufficient and able to take care of myself. And after going through the rigmarole of going to college and getting a proper education and getting a job and all of that, I found that I was ill-equipped to actually do anything in my life without relying on, you know, the system that I was put into that makes it go better. I was just a cog and I wasn't really benefiting from anything. So I was like, well, it sounds like there's some things that I have to do. There's things that I have to learn in order to feel better about this. Um, So where do I start? And then my, you know, simple brain, I want to reduce everything down into its parts and study them and then put it back together and see how it fits. And you do that with a big picture of, you know, how to fix our system and how to fix the United States and politics and all of this. And it's it's overwhelming. Um, so I think that's how the Tom Wessels conversation sort of came into our first episode, because that gives you the right frame of mind. Like Dan, you were saying, like it, it helps you think about things a little bit differently. And I think that's what we were trying to get across was um, you have to realize that thinking big picture is very complex 
And you have to start with the things that you can control and then organize, which is what you're talking about, Dan, um, how your podcast goes to the next level. And that's what I was saying. It adds a layer of complex complexity to it because of that organization where it goes from your community to um, the work, the actual working class and like a bigger group of people, bigger sample size of people. That adds like a layer of complexity to it that I think it's hard to jump into that conversation without making generalizations and sweeping um, assumptions that you have to make sure people are on the same page in order to pull the extrapolate, you know, the, the right information from or the message that you're trying to send across. Does that make sense? There's one thing I was thinking about asking you, perhaps Andy, because it was something that you said on one of your podcasts, I'm not entirely sure which one it was, about, I mean, you were just talking about small scale and focusing on small scale, and I immediately want to scale things. But uh, that sort of like system of agriculture, I'm pretty sure I heard you suggest that there was a way of scaling that to some extent, like how would you start to like um, sort of scale that up such that it could accommodate the needs of larger metropolises to some extent? Or like, I mean, this is quite big picture thinking or long-term thinking, sure. but it's also this question of like, the distinction between uh, an agricultural country and like and the, the town kind of thing, which I feel mm -hmm. like maybe is more of a big political divide in the in the US than it is here to some extent. Although it does that that divide does exist kind of. Thing. So if you have any thoughts right. on that, I don't know. And I think that comes down to the caring capacity, right? Yeah, and, and uh, understanding where that is. Yeah, so like you you've got these, um, I guess, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like opposite, I guess, um, perspectives where by increasing efficiency, you take the risk of um, losing the the participatory and self uh, self determination of those communities by trying to scale up, uh, and it's kind of you know, where's that threshold where you where it no longer is um, good in in terms of like the trade off between that efficiency and the the ownership of the community, and um, I, I don't know if there really is an answer. Um, I think our like sixth episode we did on um, um, the the city and the role of the city in the future. Mm -hmm. We kind of we uh, had talked a bit about kind of what is that Catherine Tumber? Yes, Catherine she comes Tumber. up all the time in our episodes. We talk about we're talking about her in your episode now. <laughs> um, it's a great book, but her book um, about city resiliency, small um, gritty and green, small gritty and green. It's a great book. Highly recommend it. Um, she kind of points to that cities. Um, generally are able to be self-sustainable in terms of like utilizing the farmlands around them seems to be up to about a hundred thousand people. That's where it starts kind of um, democracy starts to fade a little bit and there's consolidations of power um, and the ability of the, the rural parts of the community to feed the city starts to uh, diminish. So, I mean, if you were talking off the cuff, I would say that's probably a good figure of where that kind of um, the trade-off between uh, efficiency and uh, density kind of, or a loss of democracy kind of uh, stands. So that's very small scale. And I mean, yeah, in terms you, of like, you, you can know, scale it up of Boston only yeah. so far. Cause I think we've kind of run the numbers on a couple of cities on um, how much space you need to support the city and, yeah. and what that actually looks like, how efficient that can actually be. Um, and I, I don't know them off the top of my head, but um, they, they were pretty good. I mean, as far as support, like 
for a city like Boston, where we live, there's a lot of people in a very small amount of space, but in a cold climate, yeah, in a cold climate, and you can't do a whole lot there. But then you look at a city like Atlanta with a lot of space around it, it's a larger city, and you can grow a considerable amount of food for it with the land that's available around and in the city. Yeah, and that's just like just a you know you can call it utopian look at the way the world the world could be. But what we're saying is it could work. And, um, and yeah, where, where, do, where do you start and how do we scale that is like kind of the problems that we're trying to get people to think about so that maybe, you know, out of the few people that listen to it, they'll have a conversation and maybe spark some ideas on how to fix this shit. Sure. I guess it's a case of like working out what units of sort of, suggest themselves almost like well if you start with building your community around you then you can start to work out like what things actually need to collect connect rather to like have a viable right. system and like right and that's, the, that's who, the, who, can, who can we put in communication with who to like um, right and that's the level of complex, what kind of, that's the level of complexity that i was that i was talking about um where you can work on your community and it can only get so large a hundred thousand people will just throw that number around like you know that's the cap it's obviously not yeah, but it's conditional on environment and you know again it depends on the uh, my personal opinion we really haven't talked about it in the episodes yet right is that i think the the role of participatory democracy is far more important than size um and that also comes down to um you know the workload that the average person does and that trade-off between technology and um i guess ecological soundness where there is a bit that the environment is willing to give for um, technology in terms of our mining and things like that. Um, and you know, what's the best return on energy invested so that we can reduce the amount of time people are working in um, menial jobs and maximizing, in my opinion, we should have more people farming because it's good for people. That's what we, we're evolved to be in nature, so we should be in nature. Um, and I think our food systems to be resilient have to uh, replicate that. So I think that's far more important than like population density uh, by itself is that if you reduce those workloads, allow people to be more participatory in their democracies, um, then the sizes can be bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, unfortunately there's, you know, it's a, a wild 3D matrix of all these different components that have to pin down to the very specific areas where, you know, Boston might be able to stay at its size, but New York City uh, at per capita rates even if it's the same uh, density, might not because of whatever other conditions they might have. And I think that brings in the like political aspect of it. Um, I, I've never really been much into politics because it's just people arguing in my, in my opinion. They're just going back and forth with their opinion and nobody's ever really right. Um, but the way I look at it is the current system that we're in now. And Andy, Andy's always talking about collapse and it's going to fall apart and shit's going to be awful and what happens. But my, my whole point is like, if it, if it's not working, you have to look at it and figure out why. And I feel like it's because of a divide and conquer approach and all of our political arguments that everybody has it's sort of you know label and break people down into groups and then get several groups to agree and that makes the majority and then that's who wins and like there is no real right or wrong it's just sort of um a shit show like it's kind of like a a circus yeah i mean edward abbey called it a tyranny of the majority or yeah a tyranny of the majority i think is the quote right so just because a majority of the people agree it doesn't necessarily make them right um 
but you know that that's okay because it's not okay, but it can't last forever because it gives the illusion that um, the right thing is being done and it just sort of prolongs an issue or the solution to an issue coming coming around. And um, I, I started to realize that it's not divide and conquer is in the approach we need. It's sort of a division of labor that we need in order to help each other. And that sort of brought me to like the Marxist way of thinking. And I, I read it all and it all makes sense in theory, but I really wanted to see what it looks like in practice and not really read about it and have it be like a theory that's lofty. I wanted to see what it looks like in practice and, and it can be done and it's not a threat to capitalism. Like, you know, you hear communism and Marxism thrown around in, in the States and people bristle a little bit. And um, they're, they're just theories that I feel like we are talking about um, in order to contextualize the way that we need to go about approaching our issues. And I, I'm not really, I don't know, I don't think of myself as a political person, but our podcast definitely has that voice to it, definitely when Andy is speaking. Nice to ask you guys too about like, um, when you kind of try and open up these dialogues with people about like where things might be going or even just like building more resilient communities, like where do you generally advise people to start? Because like, obviously you can't like get a bunch of people to just go toss together like a chicken tractor, you know what I mean? Or like, right. you know, get a bunch of goats. In the episode I was just listening to actually, Andy, you were saying about like, if you were to just go get a goat and not do any research, you just wind up with like a bunch of like mud and angry neighbors and stuff like that. Yeah. And like, I know like, whenever people can ask me about like uh, just like gardening and like stuff like that, I always kind of just say it's like a good place to start just putting together some compost and like just, you know, maybe getting some indoor plants and seeing how things grow and go from there. But like, is there something more about like, like with more of a political aspect to it or is it just like, just try and grow some plants, you know, uh, cook with something that you grew or like, what do you guys usually say to start? Yeah, I think um, it really depends on people's conditions in terms of what they're, they have access to. Um, you know, it's here, I, I pretty much whatever they're interested in, I say, yes, go do it. <laughs> Barring like buying a cow or, you know, something like very large. Um, but like if people are like, I'm thinking about getting chickens, I'm like, do it, do it. There's really nothing to it. It's not nearly as hard as the internet makes it sound. And, um, you know, one of the things, and we, we really haven't done much on livestock on the podcast, but I plan to. Um, because like if you pick up a book on like raising chickens, it'll be like two inches thick and it'll cover about 30 different viruses and diseases they might get. And, you know, dealing with all these issues, um, you know, that chickens will experience. But if you don't, if you let them live in their natural conditions, free ranging or intensively grazed where they're on new grass every day, I've never had to call a chicken for health in my life. I've never had to deal with the disease and treat them in my life. Um, so a lot of, a lot of the complexity that we assign to things like agriculture come from the fact that we're mismanaging the way we're treating the thing we're trying to grow. Um, you know, we, I get messages all the time on the Instagram handle and it's usually like, I want to, you know, when are you guys going to do something on like gardening? And, um, you know, it, there's really not a lot to it really. It's just doing it, you know, make sure it's wet, but not too wet. Make sure the soil is, you know, looks healthy. Does it look darkish and pretty healthy, like not sand and not clay? Then you're probably fine. Uh, it's not super complicated. And then when you understand things that we have covered, like um, making sure there's you know uh, cover crops and things like that, 
that's when it becomes more complicated. But usually you're not doing that until after your first year anyway. Neither you enjoyed it or you didn't. And then you're kind of already halfway there. Um, I generally feel like a lot of people get uh, overwhelmed with the concept of things like gardening uh, instead of just like jumping in. And it's just about taking that first step for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, in terms of like mutual aid, again, it kind of comes down to what people are passionate about. Uh, you're not going to, you know, I don't want to tell somebody to go volunteer someplace or go, uh, go work as a medic at a protest. If that's not, if you're queasy about blood or whatever, like everyone's got, um, you know, in anarchist theory, you'd say like, um, affinity groups, uh, kind of guide where you would be, uh, placed in terms of, um, your place within, uh, whatever kind of mutual aid you're trying to do. And that, you know, that allows people to follow something they're passionate about and by being passionate about it, you'll be better at it. Um, you know, you're going to absorb the information better. Uh, just like you can listen to a podcast about biology and pick up everything because it's about agriculture and that's what you're interested in. But you could have failed biology in high school, even though it's the same exact information. Uh, putting it in that context um, drives a lot of our ability to absorb the information. Yeah, I think uh, def definitely whatever you're interested in, um, start there. And I think the important thing is is to um, basically stay consistent with it and try to learn as much as you possibly can. Um, you can't really half-ass learning things, um, but if you're truly interested, it doesn't really feel like work. Um, it sort of is just what you do in your spare time whenever you get a moment to yourself or whatever comes up in your daily life, you know what I mean? You, you get a, a few hours to decide what you wanna do invest it in what you're interested in. And um, it, it becomes a lot easier, not as daunting. But I think the one thing that you have to keep in mind is the big picture and what your what your overall goal is to do is to learn this one thing so that you can incorporate, you know, other things that you'll learn eventually and put it all together. That's kind of the mindset that I have because I'm eventually... I'm not good at any one thing, but I want to be like a jack of all trades, kind of like they say, like, I want to be able to know how to do as much as I can so I can be as useful as possible. One of the things that you would sort of danced around because it's so much, it's so like heavily laden into the sort of narrative of your show. But like, um, I kind of wanted to double back on the idea of collapse kind of thing. Um, and obviously, I was speaking to Jack about this today because like, by looking at American politics, it feels like it's... Um, at least more in the zeitgeist or it feels like it's very present whether it's like um a crisis that comes about because of politics say or a crisis that comes about because of the the state of the infrastructure or the i mean the most obvious one is like the environmental crisis um i i think for myself i'm i'm quite habitually optimistic which when it comes to like the environment it's quite an unfortunate thing because the time scales are so short and that's one of the scariest things about it whereas i'm usually minded to be like well we know what the crisis is and we kind of know what the solutions are so so long as we kind of have some idea of what the solutions might be i'm automatically like okay that's how we go and do it that it comes it's, it's the same as like rebuilding the workers movement it's like okay here's the big conceptual thing i can sort of imagine the leap without doing the sort of conceptual work between them. right um, right but for you guys your podcast is obviously built a lot more around this idea of collapse uh, for obvious reasons and it's sort of like it sort of influences to some extent your politics i feel that it's, it's become very uh, speaking from a state of pragmatism perhaps so i don't know i was yes. just going to ask like sure. what kind of how do you envisage collapse because obviously i don't think it's like 
uh, a flick of a switch, it seems to be like it's a much more gradual thing. But, and then also, how do you feel about the fact building a politics from pragmatism rather than, yeah, I don't know. What like purity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, when purity. you put it like that, obviously, like, do, pragmatism do seems to go first? Yeah, I, I, I'm putting the purity position here, but obviously when you put it in terms of pragmatism yeah. purity, like pragmatism seems like the place to start. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, we've got so many different components that are coming together. It's hard to envision how it all kind of goes down. Um, but, you know, if we look historically speaking, no civilization lasts forever, uh, except we're looking at an interconnected global um, catastrophe, I guess you could say, uh, when that time comes. And, um, you know, we're, we're already seeing the pressures of global uh, climate change and how it's impacting um, migration across the planet. Uh, you're seeing the extremes hit different parts of the planet here in the United States. If you're paying attention to uh, like corn futures and things like that on the stock market, um, soy Water. futures, everything. Futures, out of control. Are futures are such a ludicrous thing. Water futures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, but um, like it, the the writing's on the wall that things are changing, and I don't mean that from like a like a doomsday or perspective, but like. The food here in the United States has already been jumping like 15% in the last year. Um, you know, the government's subsidizing farmers um, to keep food on the table, but like, it's just not working anymore. Um, the, you know, we've destroyed the soils. So it's, it's just like, there's a bunch of link, uh, weak links that are somehow still holding together. And once one of them breaks, the rest of them are, are going to go. Um, so I, I'm not sure. I think it's what we're going to see is, we're going to continue to ratchet up. Um, we had done an episode in August that we released like the week before the uh, election here. And um, we had talked about kind of our predictions of what happens with the election. And uh, we both had agreed that we thought Trump was going to win, um, which was actually, we thought probably the better solution because the alternative was that um, if Biden won, you don't think so. That's not how I remember the episode. Uh, well, anyway, <laughs> um, we, we, we had uh, must have been of, high as shit. Yeah. Uh, we kind of agreed that if Biden had won, um, all it would do is allow the right to kind of, uh, re recenterize their recenterize, um, kind of recenter their politics on, um, the far right, the new, the new Trump. And um, we're already seeing that happen here in the United States. A lot of, you know, the QAnon stuff and right. um, that, that, that the right slides, right. And the left slides more center is yeah. what we've seen <laughs> over and over yeah. again. And, but and I, it, it looks like a pendulum on the outside, but yeah. in reality, they've been sliding yeah. further to this. Like, yeah. And like, what I think we're going to see though, is on uh, the next uh, probably eight to 10 years um, where we're going to have um, an open nationalist, even if it's a multi-ethnic, multinationalist party, or multi, yeah, I guess multi-ethnic nationalist party, um, that is focused on um, a very weird matrix of what it means to be American, and we're starting to see that play out with things like um, the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters and things like that, where they aren't strictly white, despite uh, having white nationalist politics, um, where there's like these very um, specific uh exceptions to that rule uh that surround this idea of national identity um and as that builds momentum it's going to be an interesting um interesting to see how liberals respond to that and how the left also responds to that because we haven't done a very good job of responding to it on the left um because of identity politics and the way it's been co-opted by liberals and things like that 
um, which has just made this like really messy situation. And uh, I, if you, like I said, if you haven't listened to it, it could happen here. I think he's got some pretty good ideas of uh, what it looks like. And it's going to be um, a singular event that will uh, kind of cascade into all these things that have been building up. Um, and it, it'll be um, kind of like what happened in Portland uh, in the sense that like, Portland is still having massive protests every day, but it's doesn't it's not on the news. It's not even of interest anymore. Um, you know, cops just beating up people for protesting, um, firing tons of weapon, you know, uh, tear gas and all these other chemicals at them. Um, and like this, like illusion of normalcy that continues even two blocks down from where the protests are going on, uh, except that on a wide scale. And eventually that's going to feed uh fall into our food systems and things like that. We're going to have these weird divisions and availabilities and things like that. Uh, that that's at least how I kind of envision so the, things that, going down the next that, decade that, or so. That covers the political side of it. Um, but I think in a more day-to-day um, aspect um, with climate change, I think there's going to be more violent uh, swings of weather that you'll see in the United States and all over the world. And I think that is going to hit our food systems in the next 10 to 15 years or so and it's not going to be enough to destroy or like damage things to the point where i think there's going to be like mass scale famine or anything like that but i think it's going to show that when there's a wide scale katrina event happening and it's not just louisiana it's you know um a third of the united states i think and the government doesn't show up and have a response to that i think that combined with uh tumultuous political atmosphere it's going to be um not like a civil war in terms of north versus south or anything like that but i think it's going to be a bunch of people clamoring for resources and control of what little resources they do have without the complexity of that organization where they can share things and make things better it's going to be sort of that hoarding prepper mentality which is what we're afraid of we're trying to be like it doesn't have to be like that we can do it but there does there has to be a division of labor and everybody has to have the same sort of big picture idea in order for it to work yeah can i can i just go ahead oh sorry oh thanks man i was just gonna say real quick like i was listening to your um went back and listened to community self-defense episode today and um one thing that (laughs) really hit me was like how often like collapse basically has happened even in like the last 20, 30 years. Like when you guys were talking about Katrina, I was just like, oh yeah, things did completely fall apart there. <laughs> like, you know it, what I mean? It was or a like, shit show. Yeah. And the, gover- the government didn't show up for, you know, longer than three, three weeks. It was longer than that. And it was the Bush administration at the time. And he caught a lot of flack and still does for that. Um, but it wasn't so much that he didn't care. It was that the government didn't have a response they had no response for what had happened and that was um that that was just one city that's connected to the gulf of mexico that got hit if it was you know houston and galveston and and all of the rest of the coast like you know these larger storms are going to be because they're getting more powerful and they're one after the other now we've seen it in the past two years if it continues like that and hits more and more cities then it's just going to be katrina on a larger scale and that's that's terrible there's no response to it. Um, And I think that's sort of what I alluded to with um, somebody who's always waiting for somebody to show up with help. And even in a resilient system, you can't really fight against mother nature doing what it's going to do. But what I'm trying to say is 
if there's multiple uh, points of failure in the system that you're not comfortable with, then our job is to kind of um, provide an alternative. Yeah, to show an yeah, alternative. just show an alternative. I yeah. guess me, in, instead of just saying there's a better way to do it, trying to figure out how we can do that and put it into into play so that you know, average Joe's like me and this guy over here can 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 make a difference at least in, yeah. in our neighborhood. You know. Yeah, and to um to talk about Katrina just a, a moment um. Uh, you know, one of the things I think that's really important to think about when that happened, and I just kind of alluded to it with the politics of future collapse and things, is that, um, you know, it turned into George Bush doesn't care about black people, but the conversation really should have been George Bush doesn't care about poor people. Like, he likes Condoleezza Rice, but he doesn't care about, you know, the, the poor people in those neighborhoods that uh, were getting attacked by white nationalists. Uh, that's not even on his radar. He just doesn't care. Um, and I think that's the conversation that we're on the left losing a lot of times um, to the, the liberals uh, in terms of like Obama and so on that kind of have co-opted a lot of that language. I think a lot of people simp simplify it into red versus blue or whatever political label they want to throw, throw on themselves. And they forget that we're all <laughs> citizens of the same country and we're all on the same side. And people get really fired up about the political ideologies. And, and I, I get it. Um, but at the same time, you, you do have to remember uh, keeping that larger picture in mind and making sure that that's a common thing that you share is an important part of having those conversations. And I feel like they get lost a lot um, or maybe not lost, but maybe just buried under a lot of emotion and passion about wanting to do what's right, that people forget that we're supposed to share the same common goal um, and you have to kind of break it down and simplify it. And it, we're arguing for the same thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, what if we're both right? Or yeah. what if we're both approaching this the wrong way and we can figure out a better way to do it? I feel like that doesn't really happen in those conversations. It's just sort of, you know, you sound crazy. I'm right. And the other person's saying the same thing. And whoever shouts loudest or flexes the hardest sort of wins, yeah, I yeah. guess. But the conversation what? keeps repeating itself because that's, yeah. that's all we're seeing. Yeah. The That's great all mass of people are just onlookers who are just sort of yeah. like you reveal right. yourselves to be like both crazy kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Right. And just bouncing off of that, like it does seem as an outsider, like it seems like the US state is more more willing than most states, it would seem, to like abdicate responsibility when anything happens. Like the it always seems willing to re retreat or remove itself. Like particularly when it comes to like things have happened to poor people. Um I mean, unless they we, we're not, we're not, we're not going to step in at all, kind of thing. Um, I was going to say, we, yeah, the United States only shows up um, when Uncle Sam has to collect, and it only comes down to collecting tax money. But when it comes time to spend money on <laughs> the people they collect taxes from, they kind of drag their feet. Yeah. And I think it's funny because people argue about healthcare in this country, and it's the same thing. We pay insurance companies, you know our premiums and all that we're, we're mandated to have it by law. Otherwise you get a tax penalty. So you pay anyway. And when something happens and it comes time for you to use your healthcare, they drag their feet and they're like, Oh, this is a pre-existing condition or, you know, this bullshit, the, the medication's gone up now, even though you've already paid this much. And it's like, well, you only seem to care when my bill collects every month, but when I need, you know, your help, which is what I'm paying you for, you don't really seem to show up. And it just keeps happening time and time again that at some point you're going to get 
tired of it or and, and like find a solution to it or you're going to do what lazy people do and that's find a scapegoat and blame somebody else for your shit not working the way that it's going and i think that's the lazy excuse and it happens time and time again and i get it because emotion you know takes passion takes over that you know uh what is it frontal frontal lobe your frontal lobe and as a rational adult you have a properly working limbic system you can take a step back and be like this is how we have to approach this um not removing emotion from it but understanding where your feelings are coming from and sort of approaching it from a logical standpoint that's how you fix things that's how you approach fixing things and i i hope with this microphone i can get through to some people so that they will have this the right mindset to approach fixing these problems without getting worked up so in emotion that they get wrapped up and having a conversation that they have good intentions of getting in, but it's mostly just emotion, emotional shouting. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, no, for sure. Definitely. I mean, like, I think just to kind of like change the, change the subject a bit, I definitely wanted to ask you guys a bit more about like community, like organizing and about like what community self-defense could mean. Um, and like, I don't know, because again, that's like another super, maybe not like charged phrase, but like nobody has any idea what it means, right? Because you, you get the like response of like, well, you're definitely not gonna like stand up to like any kind of like local police force, which is like super true, obviously, like the town that I'm from, is like 8,000 people and like our police department has like tanks, you know what I mean? But like at the end of the day, like it's kind of not really about that. Um, and it's also like, I don't know, I was just wondering if you guys could speak a little bit about like what community self-defense means in like the modern era, because this isn't like 1848, we can just all go out and build barricades. And then if you could also just like talk to us a bit about like, um, like the role of guns and how to kind of like, how you kind of talk to people who have like maybe a little bit more of like a liberal attitude towards guns and like, um, you know, how those two things kind of can act, I guess. So I think when people think about community self-defense, um, it is like you said anything around firearms or self-defense when the state has that um full authority on what it means to be able to defend a community um it is a, a a real threat for a lot of people in terms of like how they think about um community we actually just before we got on this we'd interviewed uh mitchell over at our uh, armed margins who's uh, fantastic and does a lot of community self-defense training in self-defense itself, uh, community self-defense like projects. Um, so we were, we just happened to be talking about this, mm -hmm. and um, he does great work. Too. He, he does do great work. If you're not familiar with Armed Margins, go check out his work, support it, all that good stuff. Um, but this idea of community self-defense really boils down to this concept of um, having the the authority to determine your own um, autonomy and um, Sometimes that's done with weapons. In the United States, we've uh, had a very long history of community self-defense that's been mostly mostly um, whitewashed from our history books. Um, you know, like we think about Martin Luther King, um, the fact that he was uh, denied the ability to carry a gun uh, speaks to the value of that. Even somebody that we think of as like this preacher of nonviolence recognized the value of uh, self-defense. After he had a dummy grenade thrown through his window. Yeah, that helps. I kind of want to buy a gun after that too. <laughs> um, so, you know, we it's only been in the last 70 years or so that we've really whitewashed and um, 
created this um, aura around firearms that uh, I think has made it very hard for a lot of people like liberals that um, grew up, you know, middle class or whatever, and kind of go through the motions of being anti-gun and then eventually um, become, you know, becoming a leftist of some kind and um, trying to uh, rebuild that relationship or try to challenge that assumption that they made about guns. A lot of them are saying, or will say that like, you know, we live in a, a modern society that shouldn't need these things or you can't beat the state with them. That's not really the goal. The goal is to be able to defend communities that are traditionally uh, unable to rely on alternatives like the police um, or just be able to defend and decide what their future looks like and how to defend their communities. Um, it's not about um, replacing the police with an alternative, but providing that general uh, protection um, from whatever it might be. And usually those communities of um, training of self-defense and uh, building those networks within the community um, dig into deeper, more important, not to say that self-defense isn't important, but okay, people are breaking into our houses because they're stealing our food. Why don't we have enough food for the people in our community? Uh, and kind of digging into those deeper issues that um, usually stem from capitalism, but ultimately uh, create a more... Um, communal sense of uh, community. Right. So the guns come into play in a very specific uh, scenario in the society that we live in. Um, a lot of people want to say that they get them for self-defense and, and things like that, but self-defense from what? And it's either uh, domestic violence um, or, you know, it's a crime related to theft of money or, you know, Racism, we, yeah, very, very rarely do we have these acts of uh, random violence. And when they do happen, they become the mass shooting events that we see time and time again, um, which is another problem entirely with white males and mental health um, that I don't even want to try to tackle. But I'm not, I'm not even sure if it comes from not knowing where they fit in the socioeconomic ladder where, um, people work super hard and they still find that they need things just like people who work less than them. And, and I don't know, there's this weird hierarchy at play. And I think Andy asked the question if guns are anti-hierarchical. Um, and I don't know, did we, we answer? Episode? Yeah, we answered yes and yes no, and no, but it depends on, it depends on the situation. So in a, in a long roundabout way, I'm trying to say guns are a response to um, a certain situation. And ideally with uh, the proper mutual aid and people getting help with the things that they truly need, guns just become a tool in the back of the toolbox to solve a deeper issue. And with uh, mutual aid evolving into what it should and could be, um, the gun becomes a tool that gets buried to the bottom of the gun box and you have more aid to help these people before these problems get to, you know, critical mass like that. So that that's, that's the approach to mutual aid. And that's what makes it different than the police. It's not who you call when uh, shit hits the fan and cult things have fully collapsed and you, you can't, you know, save yourselves. Mutual aid is the idea of, I need this in order to prevent things from getting worse. And yeah, as and mutual, mutual aid gets better, that those problems, instead of becoming exacerbated, they become smaller and smaller till eventually where it becomes mutual, uh, not so much transactional, like tit for tat, but 
Um, yeah. If you, help, if you help me out, this helps everything from getting worse. Yeah, mutual aid is primarily around this idea of giving the person that is receiving the aid the ability to determine what they need. And that's a big component of that community self-defense is giving those communities the ability to say, these are the things we need to uh, protect ourselves, whatever that might mean, um, versus a police force that are a group of people that are not from the community coming in and um, standing as an authority figure instead of as a part of the community. Um, you know, there's no citizens arrests and things like that. Um, as much as we like to pretend that there's some accountability for police, there isn't. And, right. and it's not necessarily the situation of like, when bad things happen, who am I going to call instead of the police? That's not really the idea of mutual aid. Um, but also but it is a that's, part of self, that's, community but, self but, but that's also when it comes down to, if you, you know, over here, we have a right to have a gun. If you feel like you can't call the police, then you don't necessarily have to get anybody else involved. You can just buy yourself a gun at fucking Walmart or whatever. And Yosemite Sam, whoever the hell comes in your house uninvited. Yeah. Guns are, guns are, I don't know. Uh, I got into guns because they're they're fun and it's a hobby that I got into after fishing didn't really do it for me. It was too quiet. So I went with a louder hobby um, and I, I don't have to worry about scaring the fish. Um, but it was just something that I've always been into since I was younger. And I never, ever thought about having or needing a gun as self-defense. Um, it's not something that I'm not going to say I, it's something that's crossed my mind, but I've never worried about it. Let's just say that. And then after acquiring a couple of firearms and stuff like that, I do have a, a handgun that I carry with me every day. And it's not so much that I feel like I need it. It's just one of those things that I'd feel more comfortable um, normalizing it rather than being that officer or the cop in uniform that walks around with a shiny badge and the big gun on his hip and says, oh, I'm here just in case. It's like, all right, I I don't, I don't need you. Thank you. I'm, I'm good. I'm just going to go continue on my way. And that comes down to, you know, I, I have, I'm not even going to get into the thin blue line argument or anything like that, but I understand why the police are there. I understand that they're there to, to make people feel better, but my ideal society would be you don't need to call them. And again, they become a tool in a toolbox. They get put down way in the bottom and they get all rusty and, and they're not needed because problems are properly being addressed. Um, so ideally, that's my idealistic way of like looking at it. But I also live in reality and understand at some point motherfuckers disagree with you and it's time to go bang, bang, at least in the United States. <laughs> sure thing. Yeah, it seems to me um, as an outsider again, like, Guns seems to have been incorporated into the American mindset, where it's part of um, the individual rights of an individual American kind of thing. Like, I'm going to have a gun and I'm going to defend myself and it's just going to be me. Whereas, like, um, the, the narrative that came up in your episode on this was very much like, it's something that's incorporated into a community. It's not It's not just, I'm going to defend myself. It's how, I'm gonna, how are we all going to defend right. ourselves? Yes, but also, like, come together and, like, work out a mutual understanding for how these things work um almost I mean, train together to some extent and like yeah um, right it's about learn, learn a whole uh, learn a sort of plethora of techniques for dealing with these things whether it's sort of de-escalating an argument or right right because it's, 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 it's a tool to be used in certain arguments and in our community self-defense again we were talking about katrina and how the police um 
didn't have the ability to and in some cases actively were involved with right. attacking marginalized communities right they weren't making people feel safe and so those people had every right as human beings to protect themselves from people who were clearly being aggressive and potentially were threatening harm so that that's a situation that po politics aside um that's a uh, um, it's a one-on-one -on -one situation, so to speak, where that's a small group of people with ideologies that conflict, and there's going to be a, a problem there. And you got to have the right tools in the toolbox for the, the job to be done safely. And I, I guess we, we talked about guns being equalizers. And in, in a situation like that, they're deterrent from, you know, one side being more aggressive than the other, I guess. And ideally, you are looking for a way out of the situation where everybody gets out safely. And I don't know, in, in situations where guns are in play, that goes away like immediately. So that's why it's so like scary and, you know, fucking frowned upon to, to bring guns into an argument or a situation. Um, that's typically how people see it. But here in America, there are people who feel like their fucking rights are being trampled because they, they've been suggested to and advised to wear a mask just for the common good. And they're ready to get up in arms and pick up guns and march on the Capitol saying, you know, your dictatorship and tyranny has gone far enough. And it's like, are you fucking serious? And they're like, hell yeah, we're serious. Like we got guns. And it's like, God damn. Um, can I, can I have one? <laughs> like, can I have a gun? Like I... I disagree. I can't say that without a gun. So, like, uh, what do I do? Um, but you, you totally can. But I, I don't know. What, what I'm trying to say is, as far as mutual aid goes, fucking guns should be at the bottom of the things that are required. And as long as the people who are asking for the mutual aid are able to dictate what they need in order to help their situation, I think things should work out. As long as... Um, it's getting to the root cause of the problem. It's very important to get to the root cause of the problem and not just slap band-aids on things to, to make them better, which is what the police does. They show up and it's a band-aid for the bad thing happening. It just sort of, it, it doesn't stop it from happening. It just sort of stops it from happening right now. Yeah, no, for sure. And there's also, I feel like definitely like an educational element too. You know what I mean? Where it's like, if you had, if you were to like get to a point as like we're certainly getting to, at least in the states, of like uh, everybody, or not everybody, but like large groups of people feeling like they need a gun for self protection, like that, you know, without the proper education, that just is just like, oh my god, that could just like potentially just be a disaster on so many right. different levels. Whether it's like you're not educated in terms of like who your enemies should be, or like what you're actually fighting against, or just like not keeping your gun like in a safe place. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that comes down to what I was talking to earlier. That's uh, an emotional response. That's somebody getting a gun based on, you know, it's a fear response rather than approaching the problem like, you know, I feel like I need a gun and asking yourself fucking why. Like, if you don't feel like you can call the police and they'll show up and fix your problem, you've got bigger issues than not having a gun. You know what I mean? Like, your, your system that you live in that's been told that's going to keep you safe is is failing you miserably if, if you feel like that. So that's bigger issues implied than just going out and getting a gun. Like buying that gun doesn't make that problem go away. It's peace of mind, sure. 
Um, what's that worth to you? Probably $600 plus a box of ammo. <laughs> um, but does it really help you in the long run? You know what I mean? Like the answer is fucking no, not, not really. It doesn't make your problem go away. It's just an expensive bandaid. So you have to, you know, realize that and remove your emotion. And yeah, it's, it's scary. And you're going to be afraid if you are really afraid. Thank, thank goodness we live in a country, I guess, where you can go out and exercise your, your right. Um, I, I, I guess at the end of the day, that should make you feel better, but at the same time, it should make you feel worse that you have a bigger problem to deal with now. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have one specific question just really quickly about like, this is very like, I don't know if any of our listeners are going to care about this, but like, uh, I've been trying to put together, like, Dan and I rebuilt our compost bins and we're at the allotment. What are you guys' like, uh, go-to like, uh, recipes, I guess, for like compost? Cause like, I'm just kind of trying to keep it like 50, 50 green and brown. Like, is there anything more specific you guys do or anything to like, kind of like speed it up or anything I, like that? I use a lot of, uh, chicken manure, uh, because I have it from my chicken uh, tractors and um, I do have a chicken coop as well that I primarily use for like chicks and things like that while they're still little and it's too cold out. Um, but that's, that is, that'll get it going. Um, I also do a little bit of stuff with uh, uh, KNF. If you're familiar with Korean natural farming, um, there, there's a lot of amendments that you can add to soil. Uh, what's called IMOs, which are indigenous microorganisms, which you can add as an accelerant. Um, and that's something you can do pretty easily and cheaply. Um, I, I would say go to YouTube because if you try to read about it, you're going to get overwhelmed because I do every time and I understand it and I still get overwhelmed. Uh, but it, it's a very simple process once you actually like, see it being done and, uh, it's, it doesn't cost much money, uh, but it, it's a really great way to amend your compost to get it to, to go pretty quickly, uh, and to, you know, get that compost that you want. Yeah. We're, I'm hoping to do a series on KNF, uh, in the fall, uh, and bring on a couple of guests that are like far more knowledgeable about it than I am. Uh, but it, it's, it's essentially what we've talked about on the podcast based like this idea of like, you have this local biology in the soil uh, and essentially trying to raise it so that you can like create your own like colonies of it and using that to try to accelerate uh, processes and environments. Um, so that that's like the, the shortest, simplest way I can explain it. Motherfucking micro boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you guys, thank you so much. I mean, yeah, that's really awesome. Keep up the good work. I mean, again, like Dan and I do legitimately like really enjoy the podcast. So it's been great to hear and I think it's super important. Appreciate it. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People Too by King Gizzard and the Lizard Blizzard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time.